0: I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep, faith keep the faith, keep the faith Keep the faith, keep the faith What's up guys, Brian Ratliff here Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. There's no doubt that folk music has been a means to lift the spirits of the lowly throughout many generations. And music in the church is really no exemption to benefiting from the style of folk music. But as I reflect on this concept of folk music, I'm reminded that, that the style of folk music, when it those chord progressions meets gospel-centered lyrics, it is really a song that can really boost the lowliest of lows. And one of those songs that I have come across in our American culture is entitled The Wayfaring Stranger. You might have heard it titled other ways, Wayfaring Stranger, or the other ways uh, for sure. But this song is unique in folk songs. Because it portrays the great hope that we have in Jesus. The first verse is, or one of the verses is about fathers in the world. Another verse is about mothers in this world. Another verse is alluding to sisters and brothers in this world. And then the final verse is alluding to our heavenly father and what the Savior has done so that we can gather amongst our family and friends who know Jesus in eternity. Now, like many of these old hymns, we don't know the exact origins of this particular song. I could not verify who exactly wrote the lyrics. I could not find verification of who wrote the chord progression of the music. But what I do know for sure is that it was first published in 1858 in some type of hymnal or songbook. And prior to that time period or around the time of the American Civil War is when this song was publicized in the American culture, but not publicized in the streets. It was publicized in prison and it had the title of Libby Prison Hymn. And you can probably well testify that that title didn't fit well, but Wayfaring Stranger did. But as we think about this folk song, my favorite verse of it is verse 4. And it says, I'll soon be free from every trial. This form will rest beneath the sod. I'll drop the cross of self-denial and enter into my home with God. I'm going there to see my Savior, who shed for me his precious blood. I'm going just over Jordan. I'm going just over home. As I reflect on this song, Wayfaring Stranger, I'm reminded that Isaiah, as he's writing this great hymn of the faith of a Jewish perspective of the Messiah, he was, in a sense, like this wayfaring stranger walking through the wilderness of the world, losing their loved ones with the promise of being reunited them in heaven. I'm reminded that that Isaiah was preaching amongst a time period where all those around him viewed him as just a traveling stranger preacher. And they did not want to hear his message. And I'm reminded that great evangelist Isaiah is also a, a greater picture of another wayfaring stranger who had come in the time about 2,000 years ago and would be preaching messages that nobody seemed to want to hear. Who had died on the cross for those who would believe in him and those in the world rejected him and did not wish to believe in him. I'm reminded that the greatest wayfaring stranger that's ever lived in this world is by the name of Jesus Christ. The title of my message today is simply Isaiah's Song of Christmas, Part 5. As we think about this section of Scripture, yes, it is the Mount Everest of Mount Everest in prophecy. But if you go back to chapter 52 and look at verses 13 through 15, this is Isaiah's introduction. And he's introducing this idea of the Messiah. He's introducing the concept of how this Messiah is going to be exalted in verse number 13. He's introducing this idea in verse number 14, how this Messiah is going to be humiliated. And then in verse 15, he's introducing this idea that this Messiah who's exalted, who's humiliated, he will be proclaimed. And then in verses 1 through 9, we see the body of Isaiah's message. And in verse 1, he's... Describing how this is the affirmed mess, Messiah that's been delivered amongst all the prophets. How, again, in, in verse 2, it describes the incarnation of this Messiah. How this Messiah, in verse 3, would come, be incarnated in flesh, but be rejected among men. In verse 4, he speaks about how this Messiah would be the substitutionary atonement and sacrifice for those sins on the cross. In verse 5, he speaks about how the Messiah would satisfy God's wrath. Verse 6, it displays this level of compassion that the Messiah laid out to all the world. All we like sheep have gone astray. And he's laid upon him the iniquity of us all. In verse 7, Speaks about how the Messiah would go through oppression in his life. In verse number 8, a clear description of how the Messiah would be crucified on the cross for the sins of the world. Verse 9, he would die and be buried. And that brings us to verse 10, 11, and 12 this morning. And as I've been reflecting in this particular part of Isaiah's Song of Christmas, if you leave with anything today, here's the message in a nutshell. Christ is exalted for he defeated death, justifies guilty sinners, and intercedes for believers. You see, we've 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 discovered a lot about the Messiah from Isaiah's perspective. In, in verses in chapter 52 he's introducing all that he's going to share he begins to elaborate on that in verses 1 through 9 but Isaiah is no longer speaking in verse 10 11 and 12 you see so far we've seen Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the the believing remit that will one day come to the rea- reality that this is the Messiah that Isaiah is talking about that's why all the verbs are in the past tense and, he, and the pronouns are in the plural sense And so he's looking at how future Israel will look back and affirm that this is Jesus, the anointed Messiah. But it is in this moment, my friends, when Isaiah steps out of the pulpit and God resides there to deliver a message to the world. And he gave that message to Isaiah to write down. It is in verse 10 that Isaiah reminds us that this Messiah is going to be exalted because he's he's the only one who can defeat death through his resurrection. In verse 11, he's going to be exalted because he's the only one that can justify guilty sinners like you and me. And he's the only one in verse 12 that can be exalted because he's the one interceding on our behalf right now in heaven. My brothers and sisters, be encouraged today because Christ is exalted. He's on his throne. Yes, he's exalted. But did you know you can have the privilege right now of exalting him even in your heart as a child of God worshiping Him. Today, I believe that Christmas time, I know Christmas is already, we're post-Christmas now, but we're still in December. And everywhere still playing Christmas music. And I want you to know that this Christmas season, we can be reminded that the incarnation of the Messiah coming is all simply for the fact that we as believers can exalt Him for who He is, the Son of God incarnate. Would you come with me as we seek to answer again the same question that we've been asking? What is Isaiah teaching us about God's anointed Messiah? Well, in verse 10, we're gonna talk about his glorious resurrection. In verse 11, we're gonna talk about this amazing justification that God has in store for those who believe in him. And then we're gonna talk about the, 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 the thing that Jesus is doing right now, and that is his ministry of intercession and glory for you and me. Would you come with me in this journey as we seek this closing section of Isaiah's Song of Christmas? Look at verse 10. It says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, He has put him to grief. When you shall make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. He shall, excuse me, and the pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As I read this verse, I think about this first thought of three thoughts today. The resurrection of God's anointed Messiah. It is in this moment in verse number 10 that Isaiah is teaching all those who desires to listen to him back in his day and all those who will read his writing even up till now teaching that the Messiah would overcome death by his resurrection. Now, for years, I want to confess that I studied the book of Isaiah 53 and view of the cross. And yes, it has the cross in view. But Isaiah 53 is about the totality of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And yes, the cross was an important part of that. But also the resurrection is what Isaiah has in mind in verse number 10. You say, well... How do you get the resurrection out of this verse, Brother Brian? I'm glad you asked because it's there. You just might need a little guidance like I did, but it's there. All you got to do is read the phrase, read the verbiage carefully, and you'll see it crystal clear. But with that being said, I want to share from the first part of verse 10 how it pleased the father to bruise the son. Before we get to the resurrection in this verse we reminded that the son had to die. Look at verse 10. It says, yet it pleased. Would you say pleased with me? Please, say it again, pleased. This gives the idea of the desire that God's sovereign plan was, is that Jesus would literally be the word bruised. It literally means to be crushed. And so God, not that he was happy about it, not type, that type of pleasure, but he experienced the pleasure that the Son was totally obedient in his 33 years incarnate to the will of God's plan, the Father's plan, that it pleased the desire for God. His plan to redeem humanity revolved around the only method, and that is for the Son of God to be crushed, to be bruised. In this part of the verse, I want you to be reminded that, that, in, that in this particular verse, in fact, it, it, only, the Lord is only mentioned just a handful of times in our last stanza here in this song of Christmas and Isaiah is declaring. And in verse number 10, we see the Lord mentioned twice, and this is the, the word for the personal God of Israel. And so the personal God of Israel, Jehovah or Yahweh, is reminding us that the Son of God is going to literally be bruised by the God of Israel for the sins of Israel. Remember the context of Isaiah 53 is surrounding the nation of Israel and it applies first of all to them and then it applies to all those Gentile believers who believe in the promises of Messiah afterwards. But imagine the bruising and crushing that Isaiah is referencing here. Look back at verse five. In verse 5, we're reminded that yes, he was wounded for our transgressions. Yes, he was bruised for our iniquities. In the context of verse 5, it seems to me that that Isaiah has in mind as he's looking into the future, how exactly, I don't know, but he's looking into the future, seeing the the cross, the crucifixion, the Messiah being whipped and beaten, and and the the stakes driven into his body. As he sees all this, he, he literally sees that the Roman soldiers and the Jews are surrounding him, bruising him, and bruising him, and beating him, and crushing him. But from verse 10's perspective, it is God using the Roman soldiers, God using the Jewish people as pawns in a greater chess match against the enemy of God, Satan. And God is the one causing this bruising and crushing upon his only begotten son. And the verse goes on. It speaks about how that this bruising, he has done this to put him to grief. This word grief, it it gives more of a sense of just sorrowing. It is sorrowing that is surrounded by suffering. And so the totality of the life of Christ is pointing to the cross and is in the surrounding events of the cross when Jesus is bruised and crushed in such a way that it brings him much sorrow and suffering and grief beyond the ability for my mind to grasp. And today, as we think about Christmas, that's what Christmas is all about. It's for the Son of God to come to this earth and to carry out the will of God all the way to being bruised by God. And then that leads us to this other thought that, that, that it, it pleased the father to bruise the son, but then consider this, it pleased the father to sacrifice the son. The bruising, in a sense, gives the idea of the, all the turmoil leading up to the cross, but but then it says here, when when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Would you say offering with me? Offering. Now, this is not like, hey, you know, uh, Miss Tammy just played, uh, she just tickled the ivories and played Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound on the piano, and then we're gonna put the offering in to the offering plate. It's not about money here, okay? Now, money can be a sacrifice and money can be an offering, but this is the idea that it was in that moment of history, God had a special plan that revolved his son to be the sacrifice for the sins of humanity, including Israel and including Gentiles. And we know that this is a picture of going back in the Old Testament. They had all these different offerings. You can go and read about them. They had a peace offering or a fellowship offering. That was an offering trying to make peace and and have right fellowship back with God. Had a burnt offering. Had all these different offerings in the Old Testament. And all of those offerings, I'm talking about taking an animal like a spotless lamb who had no blemishes and, and slaying the lamb, putting it on the altar. And all that portrayed that one of these days, as John said, John the Baptist said as he Look to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is what Isaiah has in mind that Jesus is the sacrificial Lamb of God. And hey, today, my friends, you know what the good news is we don't have to go back underneath the Old Testament law system and sacrifice these turtle doves and sacrifice these little animals anymore. We can have this, this sacrifice, as Hebrew says, was done once for all, no more. And it was the desire of God to bruise him and then sacrifice him so that we could be made right with God. Now, I know you're thinking, well, you said this verse was about the resurrection. So far, it's been, it's been all about Jesus' being crushed and sacrificed. Well, I had to lead into that to get to the last part of this verse because the focus of this verse is not necessarily about the bruising of the Messiah and the sacrifice of the Messiah. I believe it's about the resurrection. Now, let me show you how I have come to believe that this verse is about the resurrection. All right, look, look at this verse. We, we've read about how it, it pleased God to bruise him and it, it resulted in this suffering and grief in the Messiah. And then he was the sin offering. But then check it out now, check it out. Now, to be the offering for sin, it means he had to die. But then it says, he shall see his seed. Now let's pause. I'm not an expert in history. I'm certainly not a Bible scholar or some professor, guesser in some seminary somewhere. But what I do know is that Jesus was celibate. Jesus never married. Jesus never had children. The word seed... Is the word for producing offspring. So, what? What is Isaiah trying to tell us? Was the Da Vinci Code really true? <laughs> no. This is actually applied in a spiritual sense that, that he would see a seed, but, but, but then it has this idea his spiritual sons and daughters, but then how is he gonna see them if he's gonna be dead? This is part one of why this verse is speaking about the resurrection. It pleased the father to resurrect the son. Now, keep in mind, there is an aspect about Jesus being a martyr. I get that. But Jesus actually laid his life down willingly. Nobody took his life from him. So from that perspective, Jesus wasn't a martyr. He was a sacrifice for sin. But he would also see a seed. And then check it out now. He says, he shall see his seed. So he's going to be able to physically somehow see the descendants that come about through his work of sacrificing, uh, the sacrifice for sin on the cross. But then it says, he shall prolong his days. Now this is the phrase, in addition to how he's going to see his seed, how he's going to prolong his days. This is the phrase, this is the verbiage in the writing here of Isaiah that reminds us that this is a reference to Jesus rising from the dead. Isaiah believed it. 700 years before Jesus came. The prophets believed it all before thousands of years Christ coming. Then we see that Josephus, that historian who, who, who lived shortly after Jesus ascended up to glory, he writes about Jesus who allegedly is claimed to being resurrected. Josephus affirms that Jesus lived. He just says he was allegedly the one who rose from the grave. And so here we see that There is a clear paper trail through the Old Testament leading us up to the cross that Jesus would be placed in a borrowed tomb and that Jesus would be resurrected from the grave. And then the apostles, they took that message, they preached it among the known world. They saw the risen Savior, 500 witnesses saw him as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 53. And then generation after generation through the church, we have the early church fathers, we have the medieval period or the dark ages, we have the reformation period all the way to modern day. There is a clear paper trail, not only leading up to the Messiah's resurrection, but leading from our present day going all the way back to the resurrection. So to deny the existence of Jesus Christ is to be an utter fool. And I say that with as much compassion as I possibly can. Even the secular New Testament scholar at the University of North Carolina named Bart Ehrman affirms that Jesus is a historical figure that lived 2,000 years ago. You can't get around that event unless you, as in Richard Dawkins' words, are hallucinating. But then to deny the resurrection is to make one of the great mistakes of history. The known world that we experience revolves around not necessarily the Jewish nation, in a sense, part of it is, but more so on a Jewish carpenter who lived 2000 years ago. His name's Jesus. Our time is revolving around him we have BC, we have AD. There's been more books written about this guy named Jesus than any other person ever in history. There's been more songs ever written about this guy named Jesus ever in human history. There's been more people trying to make money off of Jesus than any other figure in the world. You can go on a spiritual pilgrimage. You can see the Holy Land commercialized. You can see all these different spots in church history. All of it's commercialized. You can see so many things. People make statues of Jesus. They make everything about him. It's interesting. Everything in our world, in a sense, revolves around Jesus. And I say that to say this, that it's most likely the reason why everything revolves around him is because Jesus was exactly who he said he was, the son of God incarnate, who rose from the grave. Now, hey. You might be like a friend of mine that I went to high school with that said, hey, the only way I would believe in the resurrection is if I could travel back into time and see it for myself. Well, you have, an, you have an unrealistic expectation. You can either accept the historical paper trail that we see throughout church history and history in general, and or you can accept the clear paper trail that God has given us in his word. The word is all that I need. Everything else is just icing on the cake. The resurrection of God's anointed Messiah is what Isaiah is highlighting in verse number 10. And it closes out, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, that through this sacrifice, through this resurrection, through this overcoming of death, Jesus is going to prosper. And he is. And we can be involved in that prospering in eternity through the resurrection. But now, remember, Christ is exalted in this section because he defeated death. But then in verse number 11, Christ is exalted because he justifies the guilty sinners like you and me. So secondly, from verse 11, let's consider the second thought, the justification of God's anointed Messiah, not just the resurrection, but now the justification. Now remember, the the cross, the burial, the resurrection had to take place because of prophecy. He was di- died on the cross according to the Scriptures, buried according to the Scriptures, and rose again according to the Scriptures. But in verse number 11, it reminds us that without the resurrection and the burial and the cross, Jesus wouldn't have the capability or the power to justify guilty sinners. Do you know what it means to be justified? It means to be declared righteous. Now, several years ago, I was... Getting off the 220 exit to go into Tanglewood, you know, the the off ramp to go into Franklin Road and then to go onto Electric Road. I was right there at that stoplight and I looked in my mirror, and I don't know about you, but I always get nervous when there's a policeman behind me. Oh man, this was in the day several years ago. I think it was a like a dark, uh, unmarked police car, like a Crown Victoria or some sort like that, traveling around the road. area. You guys remember that one? Well, I sure do. I looked in my car mirror. I'm like, man, I'm just nervous. I'm on edge, man. I'm on edge. And as soon as that light hit green, I saw a blue light special. And I'm not even joking with you, man. I wasn't speeding. I had my signal light on. I didn't run the red light. I was not doing anything wrong. And I was this close. I was so close to saying, sir, is there a problem? But I'm glad I didn't because there was a problem. My tags were expired. It was February, I forget the year, and they expired last, that previous November. So... I received the ticket, I went to the court, and I, since then I went and got my tags, and I went to the courthouse, and I stood before the judge, I showed them the documentation, and they threw the case out. I was justified in the eyes of the law and the eyes of the court. And I say that to say this, that it is in verse number 11 that we are reminded that, hey, just like I broke the law with my expired tags, we've all broken the law of God in some way, shape, or form, whether it's a little white lie, whether it's lust in our mind, or whether it's murder or adultery or whatever it is, we have sinned against God, we're separated from God, and the only way to be reconciled is through this concept of Jesus's justification. It was on the cross when he paid the penalty for guilty sinners like you and me, but it is the work of faith. When God steps in and he declares you and me righteous like a judge does in the courtroom. Look at verse 11. The first part of this verse, we see the idea, as Isaiah has mentioned before, Christ satisfies the wrath of God. Check it out now. He says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. As I reflect on the context here, I'm reminded that just like back in verses seven and eight, how Jesus came and he came to die to satisfy one person, if you will, and that is his heavenly father. God, the son appeased the wrath of God, the father, and it was totally satisfied Therefore, the wrath of God is waved away from guilty sinners upon Jesus. And so we can go free from the penalty of our transgressions. When I was in court that day, I didn't have to pay for the court cost. I didn't have to pay for the ticket. I I, I was away. I, I got off free of charge. And if you know Jesus, my friend, because God has satisfied excuse me, Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God, we can walk out free. And then check it out now. He uses this verbiage, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Say justify with me, justify. Say it again, please, justify. This word, as I shared with you moments ago, it means to declare somebody righteous, who by the way, is not righteous. We're not righteous, I'm not righteous. Isaiah said later on in his writing here, I forget exactly what chapter, but it's between chapter 60 and 66, where he says, all, uh, all my righteousness is, is nothing but filthy rags. Dirty rags. But here in this verse, it says that God, through Jesus, is going to justify many. Now, I just want to pause and say that throughout Isaiah 53, you see two words being used by the prophet. He uses the word all sometimes and the word many sometimes. And so what's gonna happen if you pick up some books by some scholars or commentaries, you're gonna see the extreme Calvinists are gonna zoom in and focus on verses like 11 and focus focus on a word that says many, but then you're gonna see the extreme Arminian go back to uh, verses like verse six and, and, and emphasize all. But the reality is, is that we cannot overemphasize either one because they're actually both there. The point is, what does it mean? What does this mean when he says, all we like sheep have gone astray? And it says, he has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Well, when it comes to the atonement, I've said this before, but this is where I stand. Christ's atonement is sufficient for all, but only efficient for those who believe. And so the idea that I think what what Isaiah is portraying is an idea that you see throughout Scripture that salvation is open to all those who are in this world. God is not willing that any should perish. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, that's what it says. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And in this particular passage, it says all. He's laid upon the the, the iniquity or sin of every one of us. So all of Israel has experienced this opportunity to experience God's forgiveness. And so has the Gentiles like you and me. So, So the point is simply this, is that Jesus is extending his arms of salvation to all those who believe. And those who believe will be justified. But those who do not believe will be condemned. And so the choice is yours today. God, yes, is sovereign, but yes, man is responsible. And you will never be justified unless you bow your knee in faith, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. But then check it out now. It says, it goes on to say, He shall bear their iniquities. Ah. I like this idea that Christ satisfies the wrath of God. Christ justifies sinners to God. And that's what he did through his work on the cross. I am made right now through the work of the cross of Christ. But then as I read this phrase, for he shall bear their iniquities, I'm reminded that Christ not only justifies us, not only satisfies God's wrath, but Christ also purifies believers who are in God. I'm not pure in any way, shape, or form. I'm only made pure through what Jesus can do by covering my sin. And so, my friends, you can either bear your sin on your own and experience God's wrath in eternity, or you can take the option where Christ bore your sins and you can be justified and you can be purified because God is satisfied. Christ is exalted in this passage because he defeated death and because he justifies guilty sinners like you and me. But now let's transition and look at verse number 12. In verse number 12, we see this idea that That Jesus now, after his work is finished on the cross, he's ascended up to glory now, and now he's interceding for you and me. So thirdly today from verse 12, the intercession of God's anointed Messiah, not just his work of justification and his glorious resurrection, but now the intercession of God's anointed Messiah. What a passage of scripture. I'm telling you, if all we had in prophecy was Isaiah 52 and 53, it would be enough to see the full picture of the life and ministry of Christ. In verse 12, Isaiah is utilizing an illustration that the ancient world would have been very accustomed to. When a king or a pharaoh or a large army would go into a region and overtake it. They would find the treasure house. They would find the vault, if you will. And they would take the spoil or the treasure and take it for themselves. And then they would oftentimes disperse some of it to those around them. And so in verse number 12, Isaiah has all this in mind. We we I don't know how much we do this today or not, but this is what was done in the ancient world. And you would see you would see vault after vault being shifted and transferred all over the world. And you would see when when Nebuchadnezzar came and overtook Judah and Israel that they took all the good items and the treasures and took it for themselves. And this is the idea that, that Isaiah is referring to here in the first part. He says that, that through the work of what Christ has done, he's now going to divide the portion with the great and shall divide the spoil with the strong. Now, now, let's just pause here. The Bible is saying the believing remnant is going to be great and strong. But I want you to understand, I'm not great and neither are you and you're not strong and neither am I we're not great and strong in God's eyes, but we're only great and strong by the work of Christ through us and in us. And and, and here it says he's going to divide the spoil, the the riches and the benefits to all those who believe. So my friend, you know, the good news today is that our our Savior in verse 12, this part, it's referencing his exaltation again, just like in chapter 52 and verse number 13. Jesus is exalted. He is. He's worthy to receive the spoil from the enemies. And listen, he's willing to give, to disperse out this great riches of salvation to all those who believe. Christ is our exalted savior from verse 12. He is exalted. So would you exalt him with your life now? But check it out now. The verse goes on. It speaks about how Christ is our glorified redeemer. Because he has poured out his soul to death. Now, keep in mind, sometimes the word soul can mean like the, the spiritual aspect of the soul that we're thinking of, but then sometimes it can just mean your life. So the idea is that, that Jesus, he poured out his life on the cross all the way to death. He's glorified, our Redeemer. He was numbered with the transgressors, he was. He was numbered among the transgressors so that the transgressors could be redeemed to God. That's good news. That's the gospel. We see the gospel right here how Christ came to redeem those who were lost. I was wandering far away from God in the wilderness of sin, but Jesus in his providential grace looked into my life and reached in and pulled me and saved me by his amazing grace. And that's exactly what he did for you as well. We've been redeemed by the power of the lamb of God. But then the text goes on to say that he bare again, this idea, he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. One who is an intercessor is kind of a mediator between one party and another party. God on one end, then you have man on the other end. We, as fallen humanity, have violated God's law. So God, because we sin, God cannot allow sin into heaven. So we need an intercessor or a mediator, as Paul writes. And he says there's only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus came to intercede on our behalf. And you know the good part is? Is he did that then, but he is still doing his work of intercession right now, praying and interceding for you and me in glory. Christ is exalted for he defeated death. Christ is exalted for he justifies guilty sinners. Christ is exalted because he intercedes for believers. I'm thankful today that we have an intercessor, redeemer, and savior whose name is Jesus. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm going to walk by, I'm going to keep my, I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to walk by, I'm going to keep my, I'm going to live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the face.